So the Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Well, we're back in John. If, uh, if you're uh, visiting new here or if you forgot because Christmas can kind of blend our brains like walking into Walmart, it's like, why am I here, right? I swear they put something in the air. You're walking like, I don't remember why I'm here. So why am I in Walmart? Um, let me tell you uh, kind of how we got here. A couple years ago, yeah, it's a couple years ago at this point. Wow, time flies when you're old like me. Uh, a couple years ago, we read through the whole Bible, and we did a program called the Bible Recap. If you're interested in that, we still have resources for that. If you want to do it again, or you want to start, if you're trying to read through the Bible, uh, we've, we've got you. We've got a great way to do that. There's a podcast every day that's about eight to nine minutes that explains it. So like when you get to really, uh, really difficult parts, kind of helps unpack that, helps you keep track of all the kings and prophets and the law and all that. So, uh, but we did that a couple years ago. And then we said, hey, uh, during that time, we kept pushing and making sure we understood the Bible is one unified story that finds its climax in Jesus. Jesus is everything. As we say every week, Jesus is everything. You say, Jesus is everything. One more time. It's okay. That's right. And so then we decided last year to go back and say, we're just going to slowly read through the book of John, because Jesus is everything, we're going to know his teachings. If we're supposed to uh, believe he has authority, to go make disciples, to obey his teachings and teach others to obey them, knowing that, that he's with us always, we should probably know those teachings. So we've been slowly working through John. We're in John chapter 8. Uh, Josiah just read for us verses 31 through 36, and we got a lot to cover this morning. Jesus says some things here that uh, we initially want to think, man, this is butts up directly against our culture. This is exactly not who we are as a culture. It's actually not who any culture is. Every culture would have heard this offensively and struggled with it because it goes against our core tension as humanity, our rebellion against God. So we're going to wrestle that today. I would encourage you to grab a Bible. Uh, if you don't have one, there's one that looks just like this in the seats in front of you. It's important that you have that because I, I tend to say a lot of things. I flap my arms. Sometimes I do voices. It's weird. Things get intense. And, and the, the point is, we're not here to celebrate, to worship, and to get excited about what David says, or Adam, or Jimmy, or whoever else is up here. That's not why we're here. We're here to look to Jesus. And, and the Lord has revealed himself to us specifically, practically through Jesus and through his word. And so get the word out. Let's get in front of our face. If you can stand the temptation, you can use some sort of electronic version like uh, an iPhone, iPad, or some sad, sick, twisted, broken copy. Um, just kidding. Android people, I have to poke you a little bit. Let's, uh, let's, let's do real quick. I want to unpack some word association. So the rest of John 8 has some words in there that all of us associate tension with. And, and to kind of save a little bit of time, I'm not going to have you yell at me some association, but I want you just to, in your own mind, let's, let's uh, do a game together. Think about the words that come to your mind when you hear some of these words. In this section, we hear the word truth. What comes to mind when you think about truth? 
freedom. What comes to mind? Of course, William Wallace, right? Like I, I grew up, I was born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s. Some of the most foreign movements I've seen were in the 90s. You can't think of freedom without thinking about William Wallace and Mel Gibson, right? Come on, raise your hand if that's one of your associations. You think of freedom and you just, freedom! They cannot take, oh man, gosh. Okay, so uh, freedom, I said I wasn't going to give responses, but I'm, I'm losing. Uh, later on, we didn't read them this week, but all this connects, uh, the word lies. The word lies comes up. What comes to mind? Think of lies. Devil. Ooh, we're going to spend a couple weeks on that verse. The devil is the father of lies. So what's going to happen is this week, I'm going to unpack truth and freedom. Um, just a small thing. No big deal. We'll just get through it. Right. We're going to talk a little bit about that as the Spirit is led and what we feel like is, is right to cover, what John was trying to push at us here with this. And then next week, Nathan's going to come and he's going to talk about Father. The word Father is used a lot here, and we want to understand what that means because we can't really relate to who the Father is that Jesus is talking about and what that means to be a child, uh, kind of uh, where we're going today. We can't really relate to that if we don't understand that. So Nathan's going to unpack that for us next week. Then we're going to spend two weeks talking about the devil and lies. Um, Father of lies, two weeks talking about that because I think that that ignorance and arrogance in our culture causes all the problems. We just really don't want to believe that there is the father of lies and that we have been lied to. So we're going to do that. This week, we're going to talk about truth and culture, freedom and our culture. That's where we're going. Let's read John 8 again. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, mark that. These are people who are believing in him right? I think this is interesting. Jesus is still challenging, sanctifying, pushing. He knows where their doubts and struggles are. He speaks to you the same way. If you abide, remain, dwell, exist in my word, I give some caveats there because sometimes that word abide isn't used much. If you abide in my word, dwell there, be present in my word, you are truly my disciple and you will know the truth and the truth will set you Oh man, that's a quote, right? Come on. You got to know that quote. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never, say never, never been enslaved to anyone. Raise your hand if you remember that time that the Jews were never enslaved to anyone. Literally no one. No, I mean, even if you're not a historian. Were the Jews ever enslaved? It's kind of a big part of their story. There's a whole book of the Bible about it. Nay, several actually. The climax of their story is actually being set free from that. So like, come on. Why are they saying this? Ah, it turns out later on we read about lies and stuff. We get these blinders. We see our life this way. We don't know that we're lied to. That's the whole point of lies. You don't understand. You don't recognize. <gasps> is there possibly a posture in your life, be it religious or not? that you are completely lied to, you're duped, and you would say something so foolish to Jesus. Oh, we've never been enslaved, man. I don't have an addiction. You have an addiction. Like, oh, come on. We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will be free? They can't understand freedom because they don't understand their slavery. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is not talking here about political freedom specifically. That's our association in the West because that's literally our history, right? American history is founded on, say, freedom. And it's a big deal. Man, don't ever... 
hear us up here not emphasizing that. Thank God that we're free. You're sitting in this room because of that freedom. You're sitting in this room because there were people who were wise enough, led by God early enough to say, this is our trajectory. And you can spit and chew it whether they were deist or Christian. Regardless, they understood that there was something above them that they must submit to. Praise God, because that's, that's the right step. And many of them directly quoted Jesus and worshiped him. So it's great. But Jesus isn't talking about political freedom. And, and here's one reason to know that. Look at our political leaders. Just take a spam. When you think of politician, we'll just do this real quick. I will do this association. You think of politicians, thumbs up or thumbs down. Go. Come on. Look around. Why? These are our freedom leaders. Why are they thumbs down? Ah, here's why. Because we recognize that no matter how free you are, you are still a slave to desire, to brokenness, to selfish gain, to power, to sex, to money. Pick your big three. That's it. There's something else that controls us. Jesus says his words are truth, and they bring freedom. Only the Son can set you free, Jesus says. So we're going to talk about truth and freedom. What is truth in our culture? When I say truth, right, no matter how conservative you are, how liberal you are, you just, there's a tension of people pulling truth the wrong direction, no matter where you sit. Politically, emotionally, as a parent, uh, maybe you just have a little, little yippy dog and you're tense about the people who either love their dogs too much or don't love their dogs enough. There's some truth that you see tension in. I mean, you feel this, right? And so many of us would say, man, it's just, truth looks different than it did 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. It just feels different. Something's different. Shake your head if you're with me. There's a tension of truth in our culture. And, and, and I know everyone talks about that, but it's worth just acknowledging as we're in this room together, there's this tension. It's become more and more relative. What you say is true is good for you. And, and we want to so quickly spit and kick at that, but in some ways it does make sense with things that are kind of meaningless, right? Like, like what brand of kale you buy to be healthy, that's kind of meaningless. Like let's not make that the biggest truth of the world. Like uh, whether or not you ice bath most mornings or you build a sauna in your basement. Or I mean, come on, like is that really true? And so we understand that we don't want oppression. We don't want people to forcibly control us. We all have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But in that freedom, right, in that tension for truth, it becomes more and more relative. We have this phrase, live your truth. Live your truth. Whose truth? Well, it's your truth. What if your truth is in opposition to my truth? Maybe you're a visitor here for the first time. You're watching from home for the first time. What if the truth that I'm teaching goes against what you understand the truth of the Bible to be? What, what happens then? Leave. Please don't be here because <laughs> we, we teach the scripture here. that We teach what Jesus says. But, but that's the tension with truth. I want to talk to you about Philip Reef. Does anyone know Philip Reef? He was a social, some child, no, please don't quote some, some neuroscientist we don't care about. I liked that. I needed that. We'll go quick. Philip Reed was a sociologist in the 50s and 60s. He found himself critical of Sigmund Freud's, Freud's, Freud, Freud, Sigmund Freud's conclusion. And, and so here, Philip Reef would say, uh, we have this degradation of authority. No one is appealing to divine authority. There's this whole thing another Korean philosopher talks about, about how you have cultures that are could-based. What could we do? We could do anything. And cultures that are should-based. What ought we do? 
There's an appeal to authority there, right? And so um, what's happened in the 50s and 60s, Peter Reef, or Philip Reef was noticing, hey, we're just getting away. We're getting more and more away from this idea that there is a, some sort of authority, some sort of divine authority, something that's up there. And what's so interesting is this guy's not even a Christian. He just recognized the value of the appeal of something above you, something, something having power. And so whereas uh, Sigmund Freud would say, hey, this loss of authority, it's a positive thing, and you need to be, be, have, go through therapy to develop how you see the world for your authority, then Philip Reef pushed back on that. He took a break from a lot of his sociological writings to just observe culture 20 or 30 years. 2006, he wrote a book called My Life Among the Death Works. Say death works. Yeah, whatever that means. doesn't sound positive. He surmises there are three worlds. There are three worlds that you see all cultures have fallen into or traject towards. This is what happens. The first world cultures tend to be pagan. There are all kinds of gods. They're whimsical. We can't figure them out. They don't really reveal themselves. We've just got to do stuff to make them happy. And even if we do stuff to make them happy, they might squash us. They might give us big muscles. They might give us children. They might kill us all. We don't know. Just gods out there we've got to make happy somehow. This is first world, and, and as you look through history, you know a lot of cultures, the way they talk about deity, the patterns of authority are based off deities that seem to collide. That's why we think about idolatry in our culture sometimes in the Christian bubble. We think idolatry, that's so stupid. Why would anyone worship a sun god or a crocodile god? Well, you see, in, in this sort of world, there actually was powers. There's demonic evil powers that were giving things power, and they were understanding in their knowledge of how the world functioned, man, these things have power, and we need to appease them because there's no authority here, right? These are the best authorities we've got. That's first world. Second world cultures are generally monotheistic. They've come to say there is actually a God above all these gods. There is an authority above all authorities. There is a single source for what is right. This is where Christianity would fit in. And you see a rise of that understanding in history. Wait, wait, uh, get away from this pagan tension of gods. There's actually something above all this. Even among some pagan religions where there are several gods, there's still a god above those gods, right? And so this would be second world. There's an understanding that God has revealed himself and we must trust and obey him to find life, significance, and social order. Third world cultures are what um, Philip Reef would say we are in now and what most cultures are trajecting to. Third world cultures, they have moved to say moral authority is found in self. Whereas previously, you would look vertically to find some sense of what it means to exist and some appeal to authority. Now, in third world cultures, it's all horizontal. How is the culture going? How is the nation going? How's my clique, my group, my city, my people, my family? It's all horizontal. What you can see, no reason to appeal up. Reef knew that the results of this rejection of divine authority, again, not a Christian. He just understood this. And he quoted, where there, where there is nothing sacred, there is nothing it's a conclusion for him. Where there's nothing sacred, there is nothing. The, the cry of third world cultures, as, as Philip would write about this, are deconstruction and desire. He quotes, The guiding elites of our third world are virtuosi of decreation, of fictions where once commanding truths were. They've deconstructed it. They've moved it just to pure desire. What does that sound like? Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creation. On the front lines of all of this contemporary battle of third world and their perspective and, and, and deconstruction desire is 
leaving all truth relative and pursuing only desire. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. We're going to talk about just pursuing your desires. But I don't need to explain some, some old dead social, sociologist for you to believe this. This is all pretty point blank in your face. Look at the culture around you. Look at the political season we're walking into. So much of it is going to be your truth, your flavor, and how loudly you back it up with rage culture. And then that's where we kind of fit ourselves in. There's not a base standard for truth, you see. It's, it's whatever appeals at the time. Exchange the truth of God for a lie. And Christians get this all through history. Christians have always been the radicals. We want to be painted as conservatives, and we might be that way politically. But all through history, even now, Christians are still the radicals. Christians have been on the front line of people deserving rights, of women's rights. Christians have been on the front lines of taking care of the homeless, of helping those who are oppressed, who are broken. Wars breaking out. Christians have been against oppressive rulers and fighting, even secretly plotting to kill Hitler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, what up? Christians have always been radicals, whether you're a permissive society or not. Christianity's been on the front lines of truth because Christians know truth is from the Father, found practically lived in Jesus Christ. End of sermon. We We should keep going. So Jesus says truth sets us free. When we talk about truth, what we're really talking about is freedom, is it not? We want to this morning unpack two myths about freedom. We can understand in general there's a tension of truth. And, and as much as I want to philosophically work that out, and I could go through all these notes about the philosophy of truth and, and objective truth and, and passive truth, and we could talk about uh, a justified true belief and platonic ideas and Gettier, raise your hand if you know what a Gettier problem is off the top of your head. Nope, just philosophy geeks. That's fine. But we're not, we don't need to talk about that because there's something objective. There's a core to humans that knows something's true. This is why we argue, debate, and get fired up. Something is true here. And Jesus says, my words are true. If you want life, if you want truth, you have to dwell, abide, be present, actively engaged in my words. And that is where you find freedom. So here's one myth about freedom. Myth number one, freedom is to do whatever it is that you desire. Say desire. Desire. Say it like you desire it. Don't make it weird. Freedom is to do whatever you desire. What makes you feel good? What makes you feel happy? Is pursuing and fulfilling your personal desires, does that make you free? It depends on who you ask. Ask someone who's achieved financial freedom to live however they want because they're really wealthy. Are they free? Maybe. Ask an addict who can have meth whenever they want. Are they free? I don't know. Our desires are convoluted at best. They're a mess. And and as we talk about this myth of, of what it means to just pursue truth as our desires, of freedom comes from our desires, can we acknowledge that that all of our desires tend to butt heads. Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Our culture says, we say, you know what makes me free? Doing what I want, when I want, how I want. I, uh, I want to have a healthy body. I want to be a healthy guy. I also really want to eat ice cream all the time. Like every night. And I desire both. I want to be a non-anxious presence in the afternoon for my kids. I also never want to stop drinking coffee. 
I literally went downstairs and poured a cup of hot water a little while ago. Someone was with me when I did it because I knew I shouldn't preach with eight cups of coffee in me or however many I've had today. Like that's too much intensity for some people. Like, like so I have these conflicting desires. I want to be a better tree climber so that I can saddle hunt awesomely and climb trees quickly, but I also don't ever want to practice. I also desire not to practice. Two desires absolutely go against each other. I want to do woodworking projects without ever touching wood or tools. <laughs> oh, the woodworking projects that are sitting in our basement right now. One that has taken me a long time. I've got great excuses, but it's, it's going to get done soon. You'll see it, and you know. It's taken a long time. All of us are a blender of desires that exhaust and drain us. Let me give you a short list of the desires that come out of me when I just make a list for 33 seconds. I don't know if it'll take 33 seconds for me to read it. This is how I was just drawing them down quickly. I want to spend time with my kids. I want to spend time with my wife. I want to spend time studying counseling and counseling other people. I want to do sermon prep, but I want to work out. I want to eat healthy. I want to build things. I want to go hunting. I want to use the sauna that I built. I want to read the Bible. I want to sit in silence. I want to finally finish Tears of the Kingdom. Gosh, that's taken me forever. It's a video game. It's okay. I play a video game like once a year. Get off me. Uh, I want to cook dinner. I want to go on dates with Nikki, my wife. I put that in parentheses. I want to do discipleship relationships. I want to go to the, associal, the associational meetings. I want to go to church meetings. I want to do more heavy lifts, but at the same time, I need to work on calisthenics because my gymnastic movements in the gym are terrible. I'm, I want to go to bed on time. I want to wake up early. I want to have meaningful conversations with the kids and read meaningful books to them. I want to study counseling and plan how to intentionally raise my kids into young men and women who love the Lord and follow him. I want to get into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and go to Gracie Barra with my kids. I want to meet with my counselor and on and on and on I could go. How in the world do I ever pick one of those things at any given time? Why should I preach right now? Why am I not playing with my kids? Why am I not going on a date with Nikki tonight? Why did I spend time prepping the sermon this weekend instead of hanging out more with other people? How do you ever know what's right? It's literally rolling the dice. What do you feel you should do, man? You want to be free? Do whatever feels good. That's enslavement. And if you're anything like me, you recognize you have a list. And you can call it hurriedness, you can call it busyness, distraction, anxiety, whatever it is. But the point is this. Our desires don't set us free. That's the lie of the devil. Quite the opposite. They bring us debt. If I'm spending time with my kids, I'm not hanging out with Nikki. If I'm hanging out with Nikki and the kids, I'm not discipling someone. If I'm discipling someone, then I'm not hanging out with my kids. And all of those times, I'm not working out, which makes me a more present person. And I'm becoming a slob. And so then I'm ruining my time with my kids. So I'm not working out. On and on and on. Our desires don't set us free. The lie is that freedom is doing what you want to do. Jesus teaches freedom is doing what you are meant to do. You'll know the truth. How do I know what I do? This isn't a cry for anxiety. Don't hear the sabbatical thing Jimmy said in this. is like, oh gosh, David's losing his mind. He's literally about to die. No, no, no. You know where I find peace in that list? I trust the Lord. I trust that his truth is above mine. And I trust that even if I make mistakes, he's the one who guides me. Because he's the father. I'm his child. He lovingly guides me. He's lovingly put boundaries in my life. And I may never know, through roll of the dice, what the best thing is, but his spirit will guide me, and I will trust that whatever decision I make, he's bigger than that anyway. Thank God that he's bigger than my decisions. Jesus teaches freedom is doing what you were meant to do. That's myth one. Freedom is do whatever you feel, whatever you desire. Myth two in our culture is that freedom is having no master. Independence. Say independence. independence. 
It's interesting that uh, the 4th of July, we celebrate our Independence Day, which is beautiful, and we should celebrate that. Thank God that we have our freedom. But, but Christian celebrations, as far as celebrating uh, whether it's Advent or Easter, we're actually celebrating our Dependence Day, the day we decided to submit to the Lord and find order in all the chaos because only Him is, is true. But our culture says freedom is having no master. Listen, we all, we all have a Lord. You might not call it that. You might not call it a master, but, but there's always something over us that we're pursuing, we're desiring. What you live for becomes your master. Let me give you a, a very strict example. There's a really famous boxer in the 80s or 90s. You guys know his name, one of the most famous boxers. Mike Tyson. No, I'm talking about this guy. By far the most famous boxer. Name someone better. You can't. So here's Rocky Balboa. Do you know, do you know what, uh, what his master was when he said the one thing that makes him significant? He said, if I could go 15 rounds against two. Apollo. So if I can go 15 rounds against Apollo Creed, I know I'm not a bum. Huh? Huh? And he took him. Yeah, he did. Anyway, you can go see the movie. If I can go 15 rounds with Apollo Creed, then I know I'm not a bum. What do you do that makes you not a bum? You think that you don't have a master? True freedom is having no master at all? Something controls you. There's something that you don't want to make you a bum. Might be your family. Might be your parenting. Your job, your money, your fitness level, how much you deadlifted. Like, what, what is it? Something keeps you from being a bum. Self-mastery is a myth. Jordan Peterson has this interesting video. I, I'm not playing it because I get confused on what we're going to get flagged with online and in podcasts, so we'll just ignore it. Maybe we'll post it. But Jordan Peterson says, Do not confuse freedom and chaos. So so often he said he'll ask his students, hey, do you want to play a game? And they'll say, sure, Jordan Peterson, I'd like to play a game. He said, okay, you move first. Go, you play. What do we do? How do we win? How do we lose? How do I know if I'm playing right? This is the myth of of self-mastery. You think you're in control? You're not in control. You don't actually do anything. How do you know what you're doing is right? How would you know that you're making the right move, that you're winning or losing? What's the boundaries? This is one of the blessings of America. And, and, and one of the things that I find so interesting about our country and, and other cultures, there's a lot of revolutions that have happened. Um, national revolutions, countries revolting and, and going through different revolutions. One of the, there's, and there's many significant things about Americans. I'm not a historian. Nathan could talk to you until you're blue in the face about this. Um, but um, Nathan doesn't make you blue in the face, okay? He's a very interesting guy. That's not what I meant. Um, look at him. So interesting. He likes it when you look at him. Uh, not really. What a terrible thing to say about your worship leader. Jimmy said, I'm not doing anything to be in trouble. And here I am saying all the wrong things. Oh, come back. Come back. One of the interesting things about the American Revolution was they understood an appeal to authority. They said, we're one nation. Say it. Under God. And again, we can squabble, and I've got thoughts on this too, man. It's difficult. Like, which of these were deists? Did they actually worship Jesus? Are they actually Christian? There were several of them that were definitely Christians. They definitely followed and cared about Jesus. And I'm not here to convince you that this is, this is, we need to make America great again and get back to our Christian roots and all that. Man, I don't know about all that. 
I say his kingdom come, his will be done. Let's let the spirit lead. Let's follow King Jesus in his kingdom, right? That's where we tend to shepherd, right? But it is worth noting that the reason things have gone so well and have lasted in our culture is because there was always an appeal to be under God. Say under God. There was an understanding that he was above, that there was some boundary, there was something that we should do and something that we should not do. There was a way you should approach things and a way you should not approach things. Self-mastery is a lie. This idea that you need no master, that you just need independence. Jesus says, if you live for anything other than me, then it will enslave you. It will tyrannize you. This is why Jesus says they need to be set free. They don't realize the lies that they're in. They don't realize you've clearly been slaves. Romans 6 helps us. 6 verse 20. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Meaning, you had freedom from a right relationship. You had freedom, you, you, it's kind of a play on words there, an idea of like, you were free in a sense, you were slaves to sin, which only led to death. You were free from having a right relationship with God, a right relationship with each other, a right relationship with the world. That's not freedom, by the way, that's the point that Paul's making. When you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit? Where'd that get you? That time from these things which are now ashamed of, for the end of those things is what? Death. But now that you've been set free from sin, you have become slaves to God and the fruit that, gets, uh, that leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We think freedom is having no master, but freedom in Christ says, no, you have the right kind of master. John Piper writes this, you are fully free when you have the desire, the ability, and the opportunity to do what will leave you with no regret forever. Whoa. No regret forever, for eternity. How could you live in such a way where there's no regrets? You're not looking back. You have the full desire to do the right thing. You have the ability to do the right thing. You have the opportunity. That can only come through Jesus. This is why Jesus says you will be set free, that you will know his truth. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So how do you become free? How does this work? What is Jesus trying to tell us? This truth that sets us free. How? Question mark. Verse 35. Catch this. Lean in. A slave does not remain in the household forever. But a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Slaves have no security or hope in the future in, in, in the present, they don't remain in the house forever. Jesus says it. They, they, they can, they'll come and go. They don't have a specific place in the house. They're, they're outside. They might serve the house. These servants, they're not children, right? There's, there's a marked difference between them. How do we become free? How does this work? Well, the sun sets you free. You become a child. Scripture goes out of its way over and over. John's pulling us back to John 1.11 where he says, He came to his own and his own people did not receive them. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. The right to be children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They're fundamentally changed, as Paul would say, new creations. How are we set free? We're set free because we become family. We become familified, as we've said in here before. 
When I'm at a, at a restaurant uh, with my family and the server comes by, there's an expectation that they're not going to sit down and start eating with us because that's not their job and they're not a part of my family. That would be very strange. And if that ever happened to you at a restaurant, that was probably confusing. What are you doing sitting eating with me? And then how full would that server get? My gosh, eating with all those people. So there's understanding there. Now, if someone that I know, particularly a family member of grandma, just comes in to the restaurant, we're going to invite her to sit with us. First of all, because it'd be super rude not to. Get your own table, grandma. Right? But also, because she's family. She belongs at the table. How strange would it be to that server if it was like, hey, will you sit and eat with us? I ordered your food. Can you, can you sit and eat? Ah, no, I got to work. That's actually weird. Uh, my boss would think that's confusing. No, 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 no. I've actually got the papers here. You're adopted. You're part of our family now. You're a Newton. Sit down. Aside from how culturally weird that is, every analogy breaks down. Don't be worried about it. That would fundamentally change our relationship. They would have a spot at the table. Romans 8 says this, For all those led by God's Spirit are God's children. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received a spirit of adoption. Say adoption. Adoption. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's a Greek phrase that means daddy. It's an intimate phrase, looking up to the Lord, recognizing he is fully your father. You up to him. In, in this Roman culture, as Paul writes in Romans, as there was a Roman establishment, there was laws in those times, and you could legally disown your blood-born children. You could not legally disown your adopted children. How fascinating is that, that Paul wants to overemphasize uh, a point to say, hey, you know what, you outsiders, you've been adopted. Cannot be legally changed. God can't disown you. He has brought you in. You belong to his. You get to call him Abba, Father. You get to call him Daddy. We are free because we are children of God. You can now live life rightly with the right desires, the right ability, the right opportunities from the Lord, the Father who created you. A good parent sets boundaries for their kids. If my kid said, I don't, I don't ever want to do school again. School's stupid. Math is dumb. I'm not doing it. I can't think of a single reason why I'd ever need math. I'm just not, shut up, Dad, I'm not doing it. I wouldn't punish them and force them to do math because I'm a jerk who thinks numbers are God. That'd be ridiculous. I do it because I know the world better than them because I love them and I want what's best for them. They have boundaries. I teach them to respect their mother because, not just because I want them to make me look good because they respect their mother and that's how a good pastor kid should function. No, no, no. I teach them to respect their mother because that appeals to authority that they ultimately need to respect the Lord and seek him and follow what he has for them. In the same way, your father who's adopted you, he's given you boundaries to live. If you want to know how much sugar you should eat, you could ask a doctor, a good doctor. There's a lot of kinds of doctors out there, right? If you want to know how your soul should function, you should talk to the Lord because the Lord has given you his blueprint. He's given you what it means to live. The master of your life is meant to be the Lord because that is the only understanding of what life looks like. We are children of the Father. He's not some distant deity that we're just trying to appease through doing the right Bible app devotions, through saying the right prayers, through coming to the right Christian services. That's not the kind of deity that we serve. He's our Father. We call him Abba Father, Daddy. He's welcomed us in as children. That completely changes the dynamic. I want my kids to abide with me, to dwell with me, not to just try to make me happy. It's a different relationship and understanding. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciple. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Church, are we the kind of place that abides in him and his word? 
And that's a question that we wrestle with as shepherds. Are, is, that, is that us? Do we do that? Are we abiding in his word? How would we know? Well, do we see people set free? Yes. Yes, I'm very thankful to say when, when we reflect as shepherds, when we talk as a church, we are a church that consistently sees people set free. We see people enslaved all the time, and we see them set free. And sometimes it seems to go back and forth, but we consistently see stories of redemption. God moving. So what do we do this week? Like, what's, what, what we take all this? You hear these myths, you've, you've seen all the things, you know there are lies in our culture, we're going to be talking about that. You're trying to make sense of God the Father, and maybe that doesn't strike you. Maybe Father is, is a pejorative to you. It's a negative word. You have only negative associations with Father. Well, thank God the Lord's given you an entire set of divine scriptures from Him to show you what a Father actually looks like, what a parent actually looks like. This is why Jesus says, abide in my word. What do we do this week to make sense of this? I think it's really helpful to consistently be asking the question of all parts of our life. What does Jesus have to say about my job, my family? Is Jesus truly everything? Gosh, you get sick of hearing that every week, don't you? We'll never stop preaching it. Because Jesus is everything. And we struggle to believe it. We forget it. Our forgetter works really well. We get distant. You have things in your life right now that you won't even let come to the top of your mind because you know that Jesus isn't everything in those things. You're like, man, I don't want to know what Jesus thinks about this. What if he has something different to say than what I think? Because you have bought into the lie, the myth, that your independence is your freedom, that you have self-mastery, that you just, you can serve your desires instead of something else. So I want to talk practically for about three minutes as we close what do we do to abide in his presence this week practically? What do you do? Tomorrow's Monday, you've got the rest of Sunday, and then the rest of your life to live. How do we do this? If Jesus is saying, the crux of this is abiding, dwelling, being present. Say, be present. How many moments in your life are you actually present for? There's a lot of great, great quotes that go around about missing things, missing opportunities, looking back on the good old days and forgetting what the good old days were and all those sort of things. How many moments are you actually present for? This is Jesus' cry to us. Be present in his word. How do you spend time in his word? So many people I talk to, I have this conversation every other day. How's your relationship with Christ going? Because I care, and, and I'm thankful that people ask me that. I would say start asking people that, church. How's your relationship with Jesus going? You know what I hear the most? Prayer life's great. Been praying a lot. I could read the word more. I wish I was in the word more. I wish I was studying the Bible more. If you have no idea how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible, there's a card in the seat in front of you that talks about next steps. Put it on there. Say, I'm struggling with reading the Word. Show me how to read the Word. What does it mean to abide in Scripture? I'll tell you one thing that helps me. It's just sitting and reading it. Memorizing Scripture. Psalms 119.11 says, I've hidden your Word in my heart that I won't sin against you. Memorizing Scripture. Abiding, soaking, dwelling in, being present. Colossians 3 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. I've been practicing what uh, uh, the fathers of Christian faith and, and other old dead people would call Lectio Divina. And, and so often in my life, I was trained just to study Scripture. You open the Bible, and you've got to figure it out. 
well, what is, what is the Greek word for abide? And, and, and what did that culture understand abide to mean? And when they say enslaved, what is, what is slavery in, in Greek? And, and what's the history of the, the Israelites in slavery? That's how my mind's been trained to think about Scripture. And there's a place for that. And you should come do that on Wednesday nights. We've got Bible studies for you. Because if you don't study Scripture, you're going to selfishly misinterpret it for what you want. But, but what Lectio Divina does for me is it's literally just reading it. I try to set aside... I'm just going to study this, man, and I just read it. I say, man, God, what are you trying to speak to me in your spirit? And one of the most recent things that happened is uh, in Philippians 3. Paul says that uh, I haven't obtained it, but I take hold of Christ as Christ has taken hold of me. And I felt the Spirit say to me, hey, Christ has taken hold of you. Do you believe that Christ has taken hold of you? I didn't need to go study all, all the ideas of being taken hold of or the Greek word, it just hit me, man. Just reading his word, letting the spirit guide, man. What does that do? Take time this week for Lecto Divina. Just sit and read scripture. Psalms 1 even says, what does the wise man do? They meditate on God's words, on his law. They sit, they dwell, they abide in it. Study the word with us on Wednesday nights, and then we go and we teach the word. What is your relationship with God's word? As we preach, as we teach it, I would encourage you this week, if Jesus is saying, abide in my word, my word is life, this week, how can you set a posture in your life, a practice to say, I'm just going to dwell, to be present in his words. This will be through reading scripture. As the band comes and we play, we're going to sing a song that, that we sing together, we declare we're free. We're free indeed. The Lord has set us free. And in that freedom... We don't go and get to live however we want. We live in the boundaries of a loving Father who's guided us. I would encourage you as we sing to worship this with us, but also to open your hands and ask God, in what ways am I still enslaved? Am I trapped in things that I'm not trusting you and that I'm not giving to you? In what ways am I not being present in your truth, in your word? If you need someone to pray with, there'll be people around. Take time to respond to the Lord now. God, I pray that you would guide us as we... we get present with you. You tell us that you're with us always. We believe that you're in this room now, that you're with us always through your spirit. And we ask in, in the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit, that you would speak right now, that your word would be real to us, that we would find freedom from your words, the truth that you make known to us as we be present with you, with your words. God, we pray that you would unearth the, the, the sin, the things in our life that are enslaving us, the lies. God, shine light on the lies that we're holding on to. Hurry, busyness, anxiousness. God, I pray that you would bring those things service and that we would trust you with them and we would seek your truth. We trust you in this time. We pray for those who have never given their life to you. We're struggling to trust in you, to believe that you have freedom. We pray that your spirit would be drawing them to you step out and pray and give our lives to you. Guide us as we respond, Father. Thank you for being with us. Teach us to be present with you.